dissected all of the, the intimate parts of self-denying, sacrificial agape love. If he had said Ephesians, I could have preached on living a life of love. I could have used John 3.16 from the Gospels, but Pastor Joel said Romans. So as I was pondering this, two other things were running through my head. And the first thing running through my head was song lyrics. Now, I haven't listened to the radio since probably the mid-1980s. So whenever I'm listening to music, it's either worship music or the oldies. And over the Christmas holidays, I was doing what every sane, rational person does, and I was obsessing over a jigsaw puzzle. And I had the music on, and I was singing along to oldies. And a classic Gordon Lightfoot song came on called The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Uh, for those of you who are too young to know it, it's a ballad, and it's about a lake freighter that encountered an early winter storm on Lake Superior in November of 1975, and it capsized, killing all 29 people on board. Now, I was in high school at the time, please don't do the math, and uh, the song was always meaningful to me because I had heard it on the news. And it's really a haunting tune. And there's a line in there that caught my attention and I ran and grabbed a pen and wrote it down so I'd remember it. And it says this, does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? And I thought about that for a while and I tried to put myself in the place of the sailors. What were they thinking about when they realized that they weren't gonna make it, when the ship was gonna go down? Were they mad? Were they blaming God? Were they afraid? Were they busy making bargains with God? You know, the kind that we all tend to do, you know, God, if you just get me out of this situation, if you just fix it for me, I promise I'll go to church every Sunday and I'll even give money. Lots of us make bargains with God. About the same time, there was constant coverage on the TV about the Australian wildfires. And the numbers being reported were staggering. It seemed that every week the loss of life and the loss of buildings and the loss of wildlife just kept rising exponentially. I watched videos of firefighters in their trucks surrounded by walls of flames. And it looked like the end of the world. It looked apocalyptic. And by the end of January, there were reports of 10 million hectares burned, 30 people killed, and over 25,000 koala bears killed on one island alone. And this song returned to my memory, but it was rephrased. Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the flames turn the minutes to hours? And it's a common question, really. We rephrase it in many ways, and I think we can probably all face fear. And there are times when we just cry out, God, where are you? Or do you love me, God? And we start to question. And there's a well-known passage in the book of Romans in chapter 8, verses 38-39, where the Apostle Paul states this, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This essentially is the answer to the question, where does the love of God go? His love goes nowhere. It's everywhere. It may be obscure to us. Perhaps we don't feel it. But when we operate merely on feelings or emotions, we find that they can deceive us. 
And that happens with this issue. Just feeling unloved by God does not mean that his love is absent or fading or conditional or unfaithful. So I could likely just stop there and say, well, there's the question and there's the answer, sermon's done, go home for lunch. But I think it's helpful to see the developing argument from the book of Romans. Now, Romans is an interesting read. It's a first century letter to the fledgling church in Rome from the Apostle Paul. It was a church that he did not plant. In fact, other than a few people he mentions personally at the end of the letter, the church is made up of people he doesn't know. It was likely a mix of wealthy Romans, perhaps even slave owners, some Gentile slaves, some Jews who had been exiled from Judea, probably poor and middle class, and others who had been raised worshiping at pagan temples. We see different social standings, different degrees of wealth, different cultures and different religious backgrounds, but in some amazing work of God, all of these people had come to follow Jesus of Nazareth, and they're trying to work out in a practical sense what that looks like. The Jewish contingent probably were still struggling over the issue of welcoming Gentiles. For centuries, they had been considered unworthy, unclean. And they had a sense of national pride and also judgment against these newcomers who had obviously not followed the law of Moses as faithfully as they had. Yet all of these church members together lived under the oppression of the Roman Empire. Of course, those with little means suffered the most. Poverty was really common. And tensions were rising across the whole Roman Empire that eventually led to serious persecution, even martyrdom, of Christians just like these. And there were many challenges to building community. So I wonder, is this any different from the church of today? Congregations struggling to honor different cultural roots, different traditions, different theological views, different levels of affluence and power? How does one reconcile with different opinions? How does one love well in this context? And one thing I noticed as I was reading the book of Romans that right up to chapter 12, verse 9, the love of God is mentioned only twice. Once in chapter 5 and again in chapter 8, which seems rather odd for such a long theological work. And the passage that introduces God's love for the first time begins in chapter 5 with this expression. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I started to read the book backwards to find out what the therefore was there for. What led Paul to talk about the subject of God's love? So back in chapter one, Paul is describing the human condition. And his thesis is that left to ourselves, we follow evil desires and we exalt ourselves as if we were somehow God and as if we were in control of our destiny. In verse 24, it says, therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their heart. The result, sexual immorality, no acknowledgement of God, all kinds of wickedness, evil, strife, murder, gossip, faithlessness, and more. And the next, therefore, is seen at probably the most unfortunate chapter break in the whole Bible. Now, we all know that these letters were just letters. They didn't have chapter numbers and verse numbers. They were added later by the scribes. And how they decided to break chapter 1 and go to chapter 2, I have no idea. Paul has just proclaimed man's natural state of rebellion. 
He lists a bunch of sins that reveal the wickedness of our own hearts. And I'm sure it hits close to home with some. But there were others, perhaps those who meticulously followed the law of Moses, who would read chapter one and puff themselves up and pat themselves on the back. And then when they read verse 32 that says, these people, the sinful people, who do such things and approve of those who practice them, they deserve death. I can just hear them going, preach it, Paul. That's not me. But the very next verse says this, therefore you have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. You do the same things. We condemn ourselves, God says, when we judge others, when we feel superior. And Paul continues in Romans with a discussion on the role of the law. Even though the Jews had the law of Moses, and even if they obeyed it fully, which of course no one ever could, they would never be able to attain God's righteousness. Because the role of the law was actually to expose sin, to reveal all that wickedness in our heart described in chapter 1. It wasn't given to make us righteous. And in fact, Paul summarized the discussion in chapter 3 saying, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And that leads us to our next therefore. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. And this is a sobering statement. None of our good works by themselves in the end will solve our problem with sin. And so many people just spend so much time trying to be good enough. They assume that God will then grant them a place in heaven. But we can't weigh all of our sins in one hand and then somehow try to outweigh it with all our good works in the other hand because no one is declared righteous that way. And as we track with Paul in his discussion, he goes back to the Jewish patriarch Abraham. This man Abraham believed God, Paul says, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This happened generations before Moses, years before the law, even before the rite of circumcision had been prescribed as the visible seal of righteousness. Yet Abraham symbolically became the father of all the faithful, Jews and Gentiles. If you are sitting here today with faith in Jesus Christ, Abraham is your spiritual father. And how did this happen? How was he declared righteous in God's sight? Through faith. Therefore, Paul says, the promise came by faith so that it may be by grace. So you might be wondering where all of this is going. Weren't we talking about love? But you'll notice we're right back at chapter 5 where Paul finally, finally mentions the love of God. So we're going to summarize. The depravity of mankind separates us from God. Therefore, God gave us over to sinful desires. The depravity of mankind is universal. No one is exempt. Therefore, we have no excuse when we condemn others. For what we're doing is condemning ourselves. The law exposes our sin, but does not provide a remedy for it. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous by merely observing the law. Abraham was declared righteous even before the law existed. Therefore, the promise of God comes by faith as an act of grace. And therefore, in chapter 5, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And that peace of God 
leads us to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, the glory of God is a multifaceted concept. In Israel's relationship with God, the glory of God was revealed to them through physical phenomena. It was the idea of God's splendor or his worthiness or even his weightiness that appeared on display in the cloud that led them through the desert wilderness. Or it was displayed in the cloud that descended to Mount Sinai. Or in Ezekiel's case, it was a vision of his presence filling the temple. And the prophet Isaiah also declared, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted and the train of his robe filled the temple and above him were seraphs, each with six wings and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Even the angels acknowledge the glory of God. And so under the new covenant, God's people, including us, those who follow by faith in the footsteps of Abraham, we reflect the glory of the Lord to the world. The temple is no longer necessary because God's glory is revealed to the world through his Holy Spirit living in his people. And we rejoice in this. Not only because we display his glory, but particularly because we will share in his glory of the resurrection. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes that we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus. Therefore, we do not lose heart. And this is something that every believer can hold on to. This broken world does not have the final say. Even death isn't the final word. We rejoice that the glory of God is evident today and will also raise us to new life in the days to come. We will share in Jesus' resurrection glory. But chapter 5, we notice something else. Peace with God does not necessarily mean peace with man. Paul continues by saying, we rejoice in our sufferings. Not, it's not really common for people to talk about joy and suffering in the same sentence. And Paul experienced his share of sufferings for Christ. Imprisonment, floggings, beatings, stonings, shipwreck, persecution. He has a whole list of them in 2 Corinthians 11. But he says, sufferings produce perseverance. Perseverance produces character and character produces hope. Hope Paul says, does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here it is. God's love. God's inexhaustible, undeniable, undeserved, abundant love. It's poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't just drip in, drip by drip when we need a reminder. No, it gushes in. It overwhelms us. It sweeps us away. It fills up every nook and cranny of our being and in some miraculous way, it expands when we give it away. God's love was on display for us as Christ suffered and died on the cross. 
And he did this even though we were the people he described in chapter one. God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful, senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I don't know about you, but I don't usually feel compelled to sacrifice for people like that. I generally try to avoid them. But God's love, God's love is indescribable. It took Paul five chapters to get to it. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. Keeping the law doesn't fix us. Faith is our only option. Faith leads to peace with God, to the hope of the glory of God, and possibly to sufferings. But our hope does not disappoint us, no, because God keeps pouring his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Now, not many of us here today can likely say that we have really suffered for our Lord. We face common sufferings like heartbreak, sickness, loss, loneliness, and hardship. And we will eventually all face death alone. It is just the human condition. And I am fully convinced that God's love is present and overflowing in each of these circumstances. And we, when we are tempted to ask, God, where did your love go? We can reassure ourselves that it never went anywhere. It's right there with us when the doctor announces we have cancer. It's right there with us in the midst of an unwelcome divorce. It's right there with us when the monthly bills are way higher than the monthly income. It's right there with us in a hospital room or a jail cell. In fact, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And when we are tempted to say, after all I've done for you, God, why would you let this happen? Don't you love me? We're asking the wrong question. God's love is a gift of grace. We're not in a quid pro quo arrangement where we do lots and lots of good things so that now God is obligated to, let, to save us and take care of us. Paul has already asserted that doing all these good things, that keeping the law doesn't fix us. Only faith leads to peace with God and with, to hope. God is not beholden to us because we're nice people. Yet actually, he demonstrated his love to us way before we cared what he thought, way before we had any inclination to do a single solitary good thing. And if he loved us then, we can be assured he loves us still. We may doubt God's love, but we can't escape it. It's present as the lake freighter succumbs to the frigid waters. It's present in the midst of wildfires. It's present when we are dealing with pain or loss or loneliness or any other trial. And it's present when we suffer for the cause of Christ. On January 2nd of this year, Pastor Andimi of the Church of the Brethren in Nigeria was kidnapped from his village by the Boko Haram. According to the Africa Ambassador for the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students, it was part of their continued efforts to annihilate the Christian faith by eliminating its prime movers. It was also a signal that the government was wrong when they said that Boko Haram had been degraded and that they couldn't act at will. So they were sending a signal. Three days later, on January 5th, a video was released in which the pastor states this, 
I have never been discouraged because all conditions one finds himself in is in the hands of God. By the grace of God, I will be together with my wife, my children, and my colleagues. But if the opportunity has not been granted, maybe it is the will of God. Be patient. Don't cry. There's the peace of God. Don't worry. There's the hope of the glory of God. But thank God for everything. At 2.42 p.m. on January 20th, a video was released of Pastor Andimi's beheading. Mervyn Thomas, Chief Executive of Christian Solidarity Worldwide states, as Christians knowing there is life after death, we nevertheless value the gift of this life. And we join in mourning an uncommonly courageous man who despite knowing death was a very real prospect, maintained a calm and deep faith that will continue to inspire for generations. Pastor Andimi experienced peace with God. He also experienced suffering. In fact, he experienced the ultimate in suffering. But he experienced the hope of the glory of God, the hope of the resurrection, and that hope did not disappoint as God's love was being poured into his heart by the Holy Spirit. Of course, loss such as the loss of Pastor Andimi is tragic, and we are outraged at the violence, and rightfully so. But we also share the grief of the family and the church worldwide. The loss, I'm sure, is almost unbearable to those who loved him. But suffering for the sake of Christ gives power to our message, provides inspiration to the faithful, and points sinners to Jesus. I'm reminded of a passage in the book Soul Cravings by Erwin McManus. He talks about the tragic loss of a young husband and a father, and he says this, It's hard to make sense of life when you lose the one you love. Yet, in the midst of all the pain, the momentum of his life could not be stopped. Love can't be stopped. Grief is proof that love prevails over death. You cannot kill love. Love is the most powerful force in the universe. God is love, and he is everywhere. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how can we say thank you for your inexhaustible, overwhelming love that we don't deserve, that we can't earn, and yet you keep pouring it into our hearts. I pray for everyone today who's struggling with emotions and feels that you're not there. I pray that you make yourself very real today to those who have lost a friend, to those who have lost a loved one, to those who feel lost themselves. Let your love rise up and bubble up within us and pour out to all of those around us. We lift up the family of Pastor Andimi who has suffered such an intolerable loss. Would you comfort and reassure them that you are there? And would you send us forth with this kind of love to all of those who are hurting in the world around us? For your sake, for your glory, and in your name we pray. Amen.